0: Please be ready tonight with your Old Testament open to Ezra chapter 3. Several times a year I try to preach sermons that coincide with our daily Bible reading schedule that many of us follow. Today the reading is from Ezra chapter 3, maybe today or tomorrow. So I want to spend a few minutes with you tonight at that location. And coincidentally, not entirely coincidentally, but as a function of this schedule many of us follow in reading, what Darrell read tonight and what I preach this morning and what I'm going to deliver now coincides with the time frame during the Babylonian captivity and a little bit after tonight. So let's remember that God sent his people into Babylonian captivity, but they were eventually granted permission to return to Jerusalem. Ezra was one of the leaders of the return, and maybe we should also use the word resettlement. He was a priest and scribe. He came back to Jerusalem with a group of Jewish exiles They're all identified in chapter 2. And there was joy and reunions and celebration. But after living in Babylonian exile for 70 years, you don't just move in and resume your previous life. There's the hard work of rebuilding. And the most important aspect of this rebuilding was restoring All that was necessary to serve and worship God according to the Mosaic Covenant. The Jewish people, remember, had very specific instructions about their behavior, their government, their worship and religious activity. It was all spelled out in the Law of Moses, and they must get all of that back in place now. And so Ezra chapter 3 is about that rebuilding process having to do primarily here with the altar in the temple. And contained in this narrative, there are relevant lessons for us today. So listen, please. There are 13 verses here in Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came... And the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written... In the law of Moses, the man of God, they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings, by number according to the rule, as each day required, and after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak made a beginning... "'together with the rest of their kinsmen "'and the priests and the Levites "'and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. "'They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward "'to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. "'And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers "'and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, "'together supervised the workmen in the house of God, "...along with the sons of hinadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord." For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice, when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouting with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Seventy years being away from home, living under oppressive circumstances, knowing that sin got the nation into exile, finally, now you get to go home. The first priority must be restore everything necessary to serve and worship God. What does that mean? It means at least two things. Identified in this chapter, one is unity. Verse 1 says, the people gathered as one man. If the Jewish people returning had divided into conflicting, warring factions, it would have been a tragedy right from the first steps into division. When there is one primary task, everybody in the group must be signed on and committed to that primary task. Here on this page, not on every page, but here on this page in the Old Testament, the people are gathered as one man, unity. I believe there was never any doubt that those returning to Jerusalem would begin to do some rebuilding of the temple and that they would do it as soon as possible against enemy threats. They wasted no time. And all of that is wrapped up on this page in their unity of purpose and their work together. On this page of Jewish history, you've got a good example. Secondly, it means there is something that unites you. And it is, as described here, Following what was written in the law they were under. The law of Moses. There must be a standard everybody acknowledges. In order for there to be the resulting unity. God had given law to his people. Their 70 years in exile could not become. An excuse to ignore. Or rewrite. Or disobey the law they were still under. So here. On this occasion, they were united and they were united in doing what was written in the law of God that was given through Moses, the man of God. They were united to do what was written. And as you read about what men like Ezra and Nehemiah did, as they took people back to Jerusalem in groups, keep well in mind... There were threats of hostility all along the way and when they got there, all around them. And that is captured here in verse 3. They set the altars in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. Over in Nehemiah, some of the enemies are actually named. And there was a taunting, threatening atmosphere around them against the Jewish people for coming back and trying to rebuild what they had left. But as described in Isaiah, uh, in Ezra 3, there is unity and commitment based on God's law given by Moses. They offered burnt offerings in the morning and evening to invoke the Lord's blessings and favor against the threats of They put back into place the various festivals and feasts written in Moses' law. And they put money into the project of restoration. They efficiently used the grant money for imported lumber. They appointed the Levites. There was order and supervision. And you picture in your mind a flurry of activity from early in the morning until late at night. We've got to get this done. When the initial stages of work began for the temple, the trumpets were sounded. And verse 11 says, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And then it says, what they said in their shouts and singing of joy, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And the people shouted for joy. The only sad note was from the old men who remembered what the temple used to look like before the Babylonians destroyed it. And that's Ezra chapter 3. One more thing that is mostly just interesting and maybe just to me, but it adds some color to the text in the English Standard Version, in verse 11, it says they sang responsively. Response, responsively. In the King James, it says they sang together by course. Some scholars believe this is about musical renditions done antiphonally. And that word simply means one group would sing a phrase, and another group would repeat that phrase or answer that phrase. Actually, some of our songs in the book are built along that structure. And it could be that what they were singing was from the 136th Psalm. Look at that sometime. Or it could have been an earlier hymn that you'll find back in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. So whatever may be made of that, it is clear they were grateful to God and anxious to sing and express their joy. This was a good day, though much hard work attended the goodness of the day. Their united efforts based on their commitment to get back in place what God said ought to be in place for those Jews worshiping under the old covenant. Well, Can't go home yet. What does this all illustrate for us? What can we apply in our lives today from this historical narrative? I have four things. Number one, you've got to start somewhere. When you feel like you've been defeated, slammed to the ground... You've been away for a long time and maybe you're depressed and lost and tired. Hopelessness can set in and it can paralyze you. You must let your commitment to God get you out of that defeated frame of mind and come to the point where you get up and say, we've got to start somewhere. It may be hard. There may be enemies all around us. Long hours, temptations may circle around our minds like hungry buzzards. But you get up. You get started. And you do what's right. It is what good, mature people do, no matter how difficult. I can imagine some of the people coming back and just maybe being tempted to think, Well, we're not in Babylon now. We are home. It's so good to be home. Let's relax. No, the question was, what do we do now that we're back? There's not time for a vacation or a resort. You get up and get started and do the work and rejoice that God is giving you an opportunity to start over again people get bogged down in conditions and consequences sometimes of their own doing and sometimes just sort of live in regret instead of getting up, getting out of that bad place through repentance and getting to work. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to have that mentality. Take the steps that are before you. Those first steps And get your life back where it should be. God gives opportunity, but it must be met with responsibility. You have to start somewhere. This page on the Old Testament, as I mentioned before, illustrates the value of unity. In marriages and families and churches, after the admission that things are bad... And you want to make them right, everybody has to get on the same page. Unity is critical when putting things back together. This year, we've been going through 1 Corinthians. Um, We're only three chapters to the end of that series this year. And we know that the church in Corinth was what we generally call a slang expression A mess. Where does Paul begin to sort that all out in his writing to them? He begins with a call for unity. He says you've got to be of the same mind and it's the mind that you're able to have in fellowship with God in response to his instructions and in discipleship to Jesus Christ. People who are divided cannot engage in repair work until they get on the same page, and it's God's pages. The only way for Christians to work together is to be united under the authority of the New Testament. Good work for the Lord and damage repair when necessary cannot be undertaken without submission to New Testament authority. And that leads me then... To the next point, Scripture must be followed. I think when you've been through some storm or crisis, and you're on your way out of the turmoil, the devil wants to hand you some quick, easy shortcuts. But the shortcuts are actually U-turns. He wants us to think that submitting to New Testament authority is too cumbersome. I've heard these stories for many years of a church not getting good work done, divided. And somebody comes in and looks around and says, well, your problem is you're just too wrapped up in Scripture. You need to loosen up. You're holding too tightly to the ways of Scripture. And the next thing they'll say is, let love and grace override your attachment to Scripture. (laughs) Where did we learn about love and grace? Scripture. How do we function under love and grace? We follow what Scripture says about what love and grace demands. So when somebody comes in and says, you need to just loosen up this whole idea of Bible authority. You need to operate under love and grace. That's the devil talking. Even though he uses good words. Love and grace. When we are fully attached to the ways of scripture, we are participants in love and grace. In that we love God and keep His commandments, we are recipients of His grace as we obey the gospel of grace. Scripture must be followed to move us forward. My last point is going to take us over to Philippians 3. If you want to visit that page with me, I'll be there in just a moment. Philippians chapter 3. And my final point from Ezra 3 is that sadness is certainly allowed, but must not prevent forward movement. You know, for some reason, I identify with the old Israelite men who were well over 70 and who remembered how it used to be. Now, you can't just come in and deny that emotion. Sadness is okay, but must never hinder forward movement. You hear something that is incredibly sad, and that's a natural emotion to have that sadness. But we must never let it hinder forward movement. Something else the devil wants us to do. When we come out of some tragedy, he wants us to hang on to bitterness and carry around the baggage of resentment and moan and groan about how it used to be in the good old days. I I can hear, I think, these old Israelite men. Do you remember? Oh, I remember that magnificent structure. Do you remember? Yes, I remember. And they begin to cry and weep together. Sadness is okay, but it must never prevent forward movement. Current obligation cannot be stalled under the banner of sadness. Forward movement must go ahead. Philippians 3. 12 through 21. Paul said, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait, await a Savior, the Lord Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Did you hear Paul crying? I did. Even with tears, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. That's in the same passage where Paul says, Press on. Here is the New Testament text on forward movement written by a man who had much to grieve about. And he had things in his past. That could have been baggage that prevented forward movement, but it didn't. He didn't celebrate the sins of his past. He didn't live way down in the sad memories. He didn't get bogged down in the negative emotions of those who were enemies of the cross. He said, press on. Move forward. Now we can be sad about things that provoke grief in us. But we live in the present, and our charge is forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. What a task men like Ezra and Nehemiah had to get hold of themselves personally with people who at this time and on this page, were united and seeking to do what was written. But knowing that there was night and day toil, long hours, stress, strain, enemies watching and stalking, but God was with them. And as you read this section of the Old Testament story in a few days into Nehemiah. If you're following the reading schedule many of us follow, take note of lessons we can learn about people who continued to obey the Lord under strain. Participating with other Christians in good work, making critical changes in how you think and how you live, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. And they sang... Responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Let's be standing as we sing. Oh, in the oh.